So it's um, Revelation 22, as um, I hope you've gathered by now. And we're just going to read the first 11 verses. Um, I'm going to read them again. I know David's read some of them twice, but we'll um, read them again. <clears throat> so then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Then the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits and the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and, and when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Now, for people who love reading, and I know some of you do, um, one, of the, one of the great joys in life is coming to the conclusion of a, of a book that you've been reading and seeing that everything finally <coughs> ties together. That's one of the, the great things we love about reading. Um, you know, you, you don't want to read 300 pages of an Agatha Christie novel for Miss Marple to then say, I just don't know who did it. Do you? That's, it's pointless, isn't it? You know, and um, for, for the Christian, you know, we, we, we love, I hope you love reading the Word of God. I really hope you do. And I think for the Christian, when you come to the final chapter of the Bible, you want to see how everything ties together. And that's exactly what we see in uh, Revelation chapter 22. It shows us the story of salvation coming to its final conclusion for God's people. The Bible has 1,189 chapters. The first two chapters are about life before sin, and the last two chapters are about life after sin has finally been destroyed. The 1,185 chapters in between come under the curse of sin, but they, they tell a story. Those chapters tell a story and that's a story of redemption, from the fall of man to the eternal city. It's a story of redemption. And what we want to see as we get to the end is we want to see how that story of redemption finally comes to its conclusion. It's all tied up together in this last chapter. One of the great things about Revelation, especially Revelation 22, I think, is that what we see is that God's purpose, right at the very beginning, God's purpose, right at the very beginning of creation, 
to create for himself a, a, a kingdom where he would be eternally worshipped has not been impeded really at all by the rebellion of Satan and the scourge of sin. Nothing has really changed in some ways. If you, if you, when you get to the, the end and you compare the end with the beginning, you think, well, all that, all in between the story of redemption is what's filling that new kingdom. But God created a kingdom in the beginning and he creates one at the end for the same purpose, so that he is eternally worshipped. So this morning we're going to look at the simple symbolism in the first part of, of chapter 22, so that all of us who are here, those who are listening, will just see that conclusion, that how this, this is a fitting conclusion for those people who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, who, who know that this is their eternal home. The past two Sundays we looked at the new heaven and the new earth um, together, and we've seen that God's going to create that for his people, this, this kingdom, this eternal kingdom, where he'll be eternally worshipped. And everyone whose name is in the book of life will be in that, that kingdom. John's description here at the beginning of chapter 22 um, has a river and a tree. That's what the Bible ends with. A picture, a vision of a river and a tree. And that's exactly what we see isn't it, at the beginning, which is why this sermon is called Eden Restored. Because in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 8 to 10, we read this. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the, out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. A river and a tree. And that's basically what we're going to focus our thoughts on uh, this morning. So our first point this morning is just partaking the water of life and seeing the symbolism of what this river really speaks of to us today. We live in a society where we take water for granted. I know that we've all seen pictures of Storm Arwen and the, the devastation and, and people have been without power and even with water, without water. But all of us in our country, at least, we, we expect to turn on a tap and we expect water to flow out of it. We take it for, for granted. But of course, that's not always been the case. If you go right back, obviously, to the people who first heard these words in the ancient world, you know, a, a, a poisoned well or a dried up stream could have literally meant death for those people, couldn't it? Um, God created man with a need to hydrate. And in fact, without water, very much, not much life can be supported at all, can it? Um, and that's why God created this, this river flowing through Eden in the first place, because he created trees and he created man to live in this, this garden. Um, and that's what we see when we, we get to our eternal home. We see this river again, as clear as crystal, flowing through the new heaven and new earth. Um, it's a river of abundance. That's what we're meant to see in this vision, uh, a, ri a river as clear as crystal, a river of, a, of abundance, like the vision of the city walls that we looked at last week, we're meant to see how um, comforting this, this vision is. It's a comfort for God's people. Some of you, uh, like me, have uh, traveled and served God in what we call now emerging nations. Um, so I personally have, have gone to villages in Tanzania and villages in, in Kenya where 
people have to collect their water from the near stream or from a river to take it back to their homes. Uh, it, that's their water source. Now, that water source would also be used not only by them, but also by domestic and wild animals. And, of course, it's also used by some human beings and definitely by domestic animals and, and uh, wild animals as a toilet. Even now, in 2021, millions of people, millions and millions of people, still get cholera every year. And still tens of thousands, tens of thousands of people die of cholera every year. And so when you think, you know, you and I, we, we go and we look at a river, and we, and we say, oh, that's, oh that, isn't that pretty? That's lovely, really nice. You know, and we see a vision of that, vision of this, and we think, isn't it nice, there'll be a river, something nice to look at. But of course, for a great deal of people down the centuries, this is literally water of life. This picture of a river that is clear as crystal flowing. Abundant life. That's what we're meant to see in this vision. A physical representation for us of, of something that's, that's wonderful. Something that we need. Something that we will appreciate physically. And we, we see that, uh, we've looked at this uh, a couple of times now, but we also see that in um, Ezekiel. So in those last chapters of Ezekiel that points us again to the eternal city, in chapter 47, we have a picture of, another picture of this river. So I'm going to read you Ezekiel 47, 1 to 12. So the man, so that's the same man, if you were here last week, the same man in chapter 40 uh, that came to Ezekiel with the measuring rod. This is the man. So the man brought back, brought me, so Ezekiel, back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east. The temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits, and led me through water that was deep, knee deep. He measured off another thousand, and led me through water that was up to my waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross, because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Araba, where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Angedai to Angleum. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of so many kinds like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. So you can see that's that picture there from Ezekiel, same picture that we see in Revelation 22. 
It's a, it's a river. It's meant to, to show us the physical abundance. There's no river in Jerusalem, just to, so you're aware of that. Okay? This, is, this is not a picture of Jerusalem because there's no river in Jerusalem. This is a picture looking ahead to the eternal city. It's, it's, it's showing us the, the abundance of life. There's the abundance. Swarms of living creatures will live there. It's showing us the abundance of the fresh water that will be available. But there's also, obviously, there's a physical symbolism here, but there's also, of course, a spiritual symbolism to all of this. And this is seen in, in Ezekiel's vision and in uh, other parts of, of Scripture. So in verses 2 to 3 of uh, Ezekiel 47, we get that picture of, of the water getting deeper and deeper, from ankle deep to a, to a river that no one crossed. And this is a picture, and it's meant to convey the progress of God's redemptive work. And we're going to see what that is in a moment. So as God's grace flows out into the world, then the influence of God will, will grow greater from ankle deep to a river that no one can cross as God's grace is poured out. So in the Old Testament, many of the, the people who wrote in the Old Testament equated um, the, the, the need of God with thirst, didn't they? So Psalm 42, 1 and 2 says this, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? And Isaiah 55 says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. So in a symbolic picture, that, that in, in God's, amongst God's people, some people in the Old Testament would find God and have that thirst quenched. And that the river would be ankle deep. But of course, as we've seen this morning with, with Gene saying about the advent, that waiting for the Messiah, the Messiah, when the Messiah came, that river would grow and get deeper and deeper as, as God's people came into the kingdom. And Jesus explains that for us in, uh, in his words. And John explains it in his gospel. This is why it all ties up together. So, John chapter 3, verse 3, says this, I tell you the truth, Jesus said, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Right. Then we move on, and more explanations from Jesus. When he goes to Samaria, and he meets the woman at the well, as I'm sure we all know the story. Uh, Kevin preached on it recently. Um, so in chapter 4, uh, of, John four uh, of John, he says this, in chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Now we had to go through Samaria. So he went to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Then in John 7, uh, he says, this happens. <clears throat> it was uh, during the feast time, and it says, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were let to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So the only thing that can satisfy the soul thirst, Jesus is saying, that everybody has, is the presence of God's Spirit in our lives. And the only way to receive the Spirit is by being born again by that Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Because he's the source of this new life. That the Holy Spirit, salvation is not possible, I'm sure we're all aware. He is literally a life-giving spirit. He gives us life. That's what the woman at the well needed to hear. She needed to hear about this new life. When the spirit gives, it's, it's, it's more than everlasting life. It's something refreshing, invigorating, isn't it? It has qualities of love and peace and joy to it. And this is the life that a Christian is promised. And when Jesus is talking about this living water, he's talking about this, this then we see the picture in, in Revelation, we see the picture in Ezekiel, and we see that this is what this is referring to. We're talking about salvation. This river is a picture of salvation for us. More and more people getting saved, and so there's so many people saved, so many people who are part of the river that you can't swim across it. So many people who are enjoying this fullness of Christian life. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The abundance of the river. That's what we're meant to see in this picture. We partake of the, of the water through faith in Jesus Christ. We are born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the river in, in Revelation represents that salvation. It's a physical thing, but it's a symbolic of uh, God saving his people. And also a symbol, a symbol of, of a full and rich life that we have in Jesus Christ. It's an abundant river. The woman of Samaria, she, she, she needed to feel love. She longed for that. She searched for different places. You know, husbands and, and different things were going on in her life, you know. But Jesus tells her, the only thing that will quench that thirst is me, basically. That's, that hasn't changed, has it, in 2,000 years? The river in the New Jerusalem represents that salvation. And the only people who see that river are those who come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. And when people come to faith in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, they're symbolised by the river but then they're rewarded with the fruit from the tree of life. So we partake of the river, of the water of life, so we partake of that now, here on earth, symbolized in, in, in the eternal city. And if we do that, 
We therefore enjoy the fruit from the tree of life. So our second point is that, enjoying the fruit from the tree of life. Because the tree of life in the eternal city represents eternal life. That's what it symbolizes for us. It's a sim- symbolic of you partake of the water of Jesus Christ, you quench the thirst that you have for God, and you partake of the water of life, and then you enjoy the fruit from the tree of life, because you enjoy eternal life. Genesis chapter 3, 22 says this, and the Lord God, this is after the fall, so the man, uh, the, the, they took the fruit, man, Adam and Eve took the fruit from the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, hadn't touched the tree of life, uh, and this is what God says. God says the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, because they took the fruit. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever and ever. So the tree of life was in the original garden, the tree of eternal life. And now it's there in the eternal city, representing eternal life for us. There's debate, theologians debate whether there's one tree that spans the river or whether there's many trees, like an avenue of trees, like like Ezekiel uh, pictures. It, It doesn't really matter. We're meant to see the symbolism of this. We're meant to see the symbolism of, a, of, a, of trees that have never-ending fruit, a never-ending supply of food. We're meant to see the eternal blessings that the, the tree of life brings to us. This is emphasized in the scripture that we have, isn't it? You see the tree of life on each side of the river, the, so the tree of life bearing 12 cups of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And we see what eternal life means in the next few verses. When we, when we enjoy the tree of life, we see what it means in the next few verses. The leaves are for the healing of nations, same as we saw in Ezekiel 47. And you think to yourself, what? It's a, it's a, it's a strange phrase to use, I think. Because you look at this and you think, well, hold on a second. There's no more nations. There's no, more, there's no need for any more healing. So what does this mean? But that's the point. The, the tree represents eternal life. And in eternal life, there will be no more acrimony between Christians. That there sometimes can be here on earth. Over the centuries, Christians have found themselves fighting on different sides in wars. The, the American Civil War is especially known for that, where Christians from the same denominations and even from the same churches ended up fighting on opposing sides in the American Civil War. Um, you think about theology. You know, we think about the great revival in the 18th century where people like George Whitfield and John Wesley were preaching the gospel to thousands of people, and thousands of people were coming into the kingdom. But then you have a picture of Wesley and, uh, and Whitfield arguing about free will over election, not just between themselves, but quite publicly arguing and, and vehemently arguing about it. You see the acrimony between brothers and sisters in Christ on this earth. It happens. But what this is saying is eternal life, there's none of that in eternal life. That's why the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. We don't see that anymore. The saints will be united as one, all enjoying heaven together. 
He also says here in verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. And we've said this, John is overemphasizing the fact that sin will no more be no more. We've seen that in these chapters. And again, it's like David said earlier, it's important because that's a factor in what eternal life is all about. That's why it's here. The tree represents this eternal life, and we have to think about what eternal life is about. Think now, there's children in this church, and children that you know, who even now can't remember a world without COVID. Can they? A world without the curse of COVID, the curse of sin. You think about the, the things that we see in the United States and shootings in schools, and there's, there's children in schools in America that can't remember a world where there, there wasn't a, a time where there was shooting in schools. This is in developed nations. Then you go further afield, you think about children who are growing up in places like Afghanistan who can't remember a world without war, or Christians in Nigeria who can't remember a time when Muslim extremists weren't trying to kill them. The curse hangs over us all the time, and we live under it all the time. And what is uh, uh, being represented here is that this curse will be no more. The river represents an abundant life, and the tree represents the fact that in eternal life there is no more sin. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of his spirit. Jesus shed his blood to break the curse for the saints, for everyone whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we rest in that presence, don't we? This is what the tree represents, resting in that presence. There's no more curse. Some of the stuff we've looked at, so I just want to move on to verse 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The greatest consequence for Adam and Eve when they were banned from the garden was they were banned from God's presence, weren't they? When they were banned from the garden. They were kicked out of, of Eden. And here... What we know here, after thousands of years of redemption story, 1,185 chapters, that is reversed now. And here is a statement of, about eternal life that can be lost on us, can't it? You go back to the garden, Genesis 3, verse 8 and 9. This is after they had taken the fruit, okay? But this is a picture of what the garden was like. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Now, I don't know if you pick up on the, how incredible that, that is. Here's the Lord God walking in Eden, and he's calling out, Where are you? Why is he calling out? It's because he spends time with them but they're not there now. Where are you? But of course, we go into the world of sin. And when Moses was, was with God and, and receiving the law, 
God said this to him, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Now, of course, people met with God in the form of Jesus, but in essence, what, what John is referring to here is that we're getting back to how it originally was in Eden. This is what we're going back to. Those who are marked out for God, those whose names are in the book of uh, life, will see the face of God and there will be him, his presence. They're marked out for him. His name's on their foreheads. They will be in his presence forever and ever. And they will see his face. That's amazing, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? Maybe not. It is. It's amazing that you're going to actually meet with God. And we will be there and we will reign with him forever and forever. It's just joyous to think about that. People often wonder what life in eternity is, is like. Don't they? People often ask those questions. When I first went to church, I, I, I knew virtually nothing about the Christian faith at all. Nothing. Um, I can remember people talking about heaven and, and saying, it's, it'll, be like, it'll be like church going on forever and ever. And I can remember one guy actually once standing in the pulpit and saying, this was before I was a Christian, saying things like, when we're in heaven, we'll hear sermons from Paul and Peter and, and Wesley and Whitfield. Like that. Now, I was a young man at the time, and my life revolved around uh, my family and football and the pub. Um, church services going on forever and ever, and 45-minute sermons from Wesley and Whitfield didn't seem very appealing, I'll be honest. Wow, do I really want to go to heaven if that's what it's like? You know, I had this vision. I don't, you know, many of you will be able to see this. You know, when I first went to church, we had a, we had board, a board go up with like the four hymns that we'd be singing from Grace Hymnal. And I used to think, man, if that, if that board just went round and round and round the church forever and ever and ever, you know, and I was singing, you know, crowning with many crowns and stand up for stand up for Jesus for the rest yeah. of my life. I'm not, I'm not convinced that this place called heaven is going to be as wonderful as everyone keeps making it out to be, if I'm honest. Um, and then after 45 minutes, someone's going to get up and preach to me for another 45 minutes. I think, whoa, hold on a second. You know what I mean? It's, um, but of course, that was how I first saw heaven. It's not like that. That's not what heaven's all about. As I said to you last week, our very existence will be our worship to God. That's what John sees here. He says, um, uh, verse 3, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. Now, in verse 3, the Greek word that we translate in English to serve is the Greek word letreo, right? which literally means both serve and worship at the same time. And that's how life will be in this new home. Adam was called to work the garden. Eden was perfect, but Adam was called to work it. In Psalm 8, we are told that we are stewards of the earth in which we live. Now, if this earth is perfected, it will still need to be stewarded, if you like. That's a word. I don't know. Um, And that makes sense, doesn't it? of some of the things we read in Scripture. The parable of the talents in Matthew 25. 
How do we make sense of what Jesus says if our very existence and our service in, 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 on the new earth is not what it's all about? You get to the end of the parable, and it says this, Matthew 25, 21 to 23. The, so the master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came and said, Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a, with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Now, the parable of the talents is in the context of Jesus' second coming and the judgment. So what does it mean by, um, I will put you in charge of many things? What does that possibly mean? What is Jesus saying by that? What he's saying is that your very existence will be served. You will serve, like Adam did and Eve did, in the new heaven, new earth. Those responsibilities will be our worship to God for all eternity. That's how we'll serve God. The tree of life represents that eternal life. The blessing that is. We'll be blessed to live an eternal existence serving God and reigning with him forever and ever. That's what eternal life is all about. That's the blessing of taking the water of life. This is what's going to happen. These words are trustworthy and true. John says, I saw these things. He's an eyewitness. This is what's going to happen. So I'm going to finish. But how, how do we finish? What does that say to us today? This is God's story of redemption. And it concludes at this point. And there's two words here that, uh, in their context, speak to us about how that all comes together and how we become part of this. John is so overcome by what he's seen and heard that he falls at the feet of the angel to worship him. And the angel tells him not to do that. And he says two words, worship God, worship God. Here's the matter, this is the matter at hand. To be saved, to experience eternal life, we have to worship God. That does not negate the message of the gospel that only by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are we saved? That doesn't negate that. The curse, of sin, the curse of sin is taken away by that. But that's in essence what, what this means, to worship God. It means to throw everything else away, to repent of our sin, to, to say, I'm dead to the world. I'm taking up my cross and I'm following Jesus. That's what John is saying here, worship God. That's what worshiping God is all about. Worship God. That's how we partake the water of life. That's how we enjoy the fruit from the tree. Worship God. Are we doing that? That's the same question that Jean asked half an hour, 45 minutes ago. Some people, there's a lot of people who think they're going to alert eternal life to enjoy the tree, but sadly, that's not true. They won't be there. They're sadly mistaken. Spurgeon once said during a sermon, if people, even people in church, don't want to experience the kingdom of heaven on earth, what makes them think God will let them experience the kingdom of heaven for all eternity? 
to have our names in the book of life. We must worship God truly through faith in Jesus Christ. Do we have that faith, whether we're here or listening? Are we shunning idolatry and really worshipping God? Next week, we will finish our studies in Revelation. You can all get your flags out next week and wave them. Um, but we're going to concentrate on the fact that Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon to declare his victory. We started off, the lamb wins. That's how we finish, the lamb wins. But there's, here's the thing, as, we, as a final bit. There's always a possibility, isn't there, for all, any of us here or anyone listening, that we won't get to next Sunday. We might not get to next Sunday. If, we don't, if, we, if, you don't, if you're not going to get to next Sunday, are you really ready for what awaits? Have you partaken of the water of life? Are you ready to enjoy the fruit from the tree of life? That's the question that we all go home with today. Let's pray as we close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to come to you now. Thank you for that you gave us Jesus, Lord, that we're in that time of Advent when we remember that you sent Jesus and he came to quench the thirst of everybody, that soul thirst that everybody has. That he is the, the living water and that only by partaking of him will we enjoy eternal life and enjoy the blessings from the tree of life. Lord, and I know that there are many of uh, people here who are my brothers and sisters in Christ and that we will all be enjoying that together. But Lord, the question is, is, is everybody in this building or everyone listening ready for that day when Jesus returns, for that second advent? And I pray, Lord, that you challenge people's hearts by your spirit, Lord, not, Lord, just because of my words, Lord, but by your spirit, Lord, that you draw people to yourself. Lord, I thank you that we can look forward to eternal life. I thank you that I can look forward to eternal life. I can look forward to the blessing of partaking from the tree of life, Lord, and the blessing that comes from that. And I pray, Lord, that we would live in expectation of that during this time, Lord, during this week ahead, during all the time that you give us, Lord, whatever time that is we have on earth, that we would spend our time in worship of you. Worship God, John was told. And I pray, Lord, for myself, and for everybody here, those listening, Lord, that we would worship God, that we would throw our all into that and spend our time with you. Lord, be with us uh, now as we just come to the end of our time, Lord. Be with all our children who are learning in, in junior church, Lord, as well. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you speak to their hearts, Lord, and may we all be ready for your return. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.